Previously on Storyological, <laughs> we are in a new place. That is an old place. Yeah, yeah. George lived here, right? Well, it was built when George was alive. I feel like that is the definition. The definition. The definition. The definition is when George was alive. Yeah. What's the word? <laughs> Georgian. Uh, yeah, we live in a Georgian house. Uh, the address is edited out. Um, and it's a really good address Uh, it's one of the best addresses Uh, uh, very near old address what we do have now that we didn't have before are built-in bookshelves which are my fantasy of what living in London would be like which is a home with built-in bookshelves in all of the rooms I mean the idea of having a window in every room I thought was just a thing that houses had but it turns out that's not true now we've upgraded to windows and bookshelves it's like Everything we ever wanted in life. There's no one. No, no. I mean, except maybe like a bigger, a bigger yard or like a pet fox. That's that's where I got left to go. Is a pet fox. Yeah. Yeah. Magic. This is Story Logical, a podcast about amazing stories that we kind of like. I'm Chris Camerud, and I'm E.G. Kosh. My pick this week is Pop Art by Joe Hill from his collection Twentieth Century Ghosts. Papa is the story of a friendship between two boys, and it opens like this. My best friend when I was 12 was inflatable. His name was Arthur Roth, which also made him an inflatable Hebrew, although in our now and then talks about the afterlife, I don't remember that he took an especially Jewish perspective. And so this is a story that's told in this kind of long retrospective from a guy who's long since grown and moved on with his life, and it's told in this kind of vanilla sweet nostalgic viewpoint about this friendship between these two boys but it balances that kind of sweet nostalgia against what is essentially a tragic romance because you have the friendship you have the meet cute between the two boys you have um what's the name of the narrator do we get that name um I'm almost certain, but I've not actually written it down. Whereas with Sophia's story that we're going to talk about later, I made a habit of now writing down narrator, colon, yeah. edited, yeah. <laughs> edited in. Edit, yeah, edited in. <laughs> so so the kid who tells the story, or rather the adult who tells the story, um, the way they meet, where he meets Art, the inflatable boy, is that he rescues him from some bullies. Not really out of sympathy for Art, but because he's so disgusted by the bullies and their kind of nasty, rank, eager smell. And then the story follows their friendship and through the kind of inevitable tragedy of what it is to be an inflatable boy and try and live in a world with um, hot sun and dogs and spiky thorns that you might (laughs) get a puncture from. It's kind of one of those metaphors that's so right up there in your face but you but somehow it's not cheesy or painful it's like yeah being a kid being a person sometimes it feels like you are defenseless and inflatable and vulnerable to everything and everyone around you and it's like it's you you'd make it not cheesy by believing in it so hard that the the metaphor just disappears into literalness so i entered this through a deep appreciation and love of any story that carries with it the deep ache of childhood and especially of childhood friendship 
and I really enjoyed the in this the you talked about the vanilla voice and how that's balanced against the inherent tragedy of being human slash inflatable. But what I loved is that you know there's a sense of both characters feeling trapped in a way, and so there's a bond there that even though one's inflatable and one seems to be real, they share this similar sense of trappedness, and their art is trapped in an inflatable body, and uh, our narrator seems trapped both in a disappointing home life and a desire to have a reputation that protects him. You know, he armors himself in yeah. a reputation and then befriends a boy who literally uh, has the opposite of armor, just filled with hot air. Uh, but, but it's the voice. Yeah, it is the voice that makes it so special. And for me, it was a disarmingly honest voice that seems to wrap you in warmth, but from the very beginning actually arms you with dread. There's a description of art as a boy who couldn't blink and a description of art who mm. honestly did not possess nor would ever possess coordination. He seems so honest with you and he is being honest, but it's this really sad honesty. But then the, the dread comes in too and that the first interaction between them really that we get in scene is the interaction where art is really fascinated by the fact that the narrator has a switchblade and wants to learn how to throw it. <laughs> oh my god. Like my tummy did literal uh, like constricting maneuvers in that scene. I'm like, oh, don't do that. Right? Oh. And that it you know, his near impalement uh reminded me of something I was hearing somebody describe what it was like to read a George Saunders story where you read the first paragraph and you kind of had this idea, oh, I kind of know where this is going. And then the second paragraph, the story went there and you're like, Well now I don't know. Like, it's like, I'm reading a story of an inflatable boy. He's probably going to be in danger of being popped. Oh, second paragraph. I'm already concerned he's just going to die right here. Um, And it it also hopefully set up later that that art is a character in his own right. Mm. Like, that's another way that it becomes not cheesy. Art has desires and interests. Even though he might be portrayed as vulnerable, he is engaged and interested in his own vulnerability and in exploring the boundaries of that, which sets up what happens later. It's the it's the mutual vulnerability that they have and the way that they rescue each other from their own pain that just cracks my heart open. You know, art is vulnerable to strong winds, to kids throwing thumbtacks, to angry dogs to teachers disinterest but the narrator is vulnerable because his mom left and his dad is a depressed alcoholic who kind of ignores and verbally abuses his son and so the two boys find this kind of space that has been left for them where no one else that no one else wants to occupy or go into but somehow it's a safe space between them. Um, There's a a quote I want to read. It says, Also, I can say truthfully, he was the most completely harmless person I've ever known. Not only would he not hurt a fly, he couldn't hurt a fly. If he slapped one and lifted his hand, it would buzz off undisturbed. He was like a holy person in a Bible story, someone who can heal the ripped and infective parts of you with a laying on of hands. You know how Bible stories go. That kind of person, they're never around long. Losers and jerks put nails in them and watch the air run out. There was something special about art, an invisible, special something that just made other kids naturally want to kick his ass. And right there, I think he's captured that thing of 
you know, the, the narrator, he's, he's vulnerable, but also like armored. No one except someone like Art could break through that. Anybody who was even the tiniest speck of threat mm-hmm. would just incur, incur, you know, would just meet the armor. But Art, he's got nothing. And so to him, there is, there is no way of defending against being completely vulnerable. Beautiful. There's a feeling, you know, I've talked about that every story in some way is about trying to bring the dead back to life, trying to bring the magic back to life. And like every story is trying to find the potion for its characters and its readers that will bring light and joy and kind of turn their heart of stone into a beating heart. And that is the way the story works and that the the character who has armored himself and all of this toughness and seems so distant from people makes a connection and comes alive and what i adore though is the the pain that it causes him that that line you said about how art was harmless that the narrator is saying there was no one any more harmless than art that there was no one he could hurt connected to later when the narrator is describing friendship and he's saying there's a special kind of friendship between boys where you can hurt each other. And that was something they brought to that friendship, to mm. each other. They could hurt each other in a way that they'd never been able to hurt before. But the thing, the narrator says, the special thing, the thing that you had to remember is you could never cause any lasting injury. Mm. You could never cause any harm. And what I adore is when that line is first encountered in the story, you've been set up by the switchblade. You've been set up by the toughness of the narrator to think that somehow he will tragically kill his friend. He will be the one to cause lasting harm. And yet what happens is through Art's ultimately transcendent desires, mm-hmm. you know, he's the one that causes lasting harm to the narrator, but it's that harm that has caused the narrator that presumably, based on what it says at the end about him discovering love with a pop woman. The harm is part of his healing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the other things that, I really enjoyed about the story is how it captured you know this story is what I don't know more than 10 years old I think the collection came out quite a while ago but it captured that thing that I feel is so up in our faces at the moment which is a rage at people who are different for no other reason than being different and perhaps not operating by our own assumptions our own our own rules that damn it, we don't like it when other people operate differently because that causes us to question the very structures and foundations that we are using to navigate life. And that drives people crazy, no matter what side of the political spectrum that you come from. Like when people force you to challenge the, the decisions you make in your life and the way that you live by being different, it can send people crazy. And so... The thing that I loved is he personified this, personified, anthropomorphized it in the mm-hmm. dog. So the narrator's dad buys this dog and it represents the rage of his father at the mother leaving, at the world around him for not for not providing him. I don't know, but it represents the rage of his father the rage at people who are different and he because it seems like he's bought it specifically to intimidate art you know in a very kind of i mean i don't want to call it passive aggressive because it's a pretty full-on aggressive move but he won't ever admit that this is why he's done it right um yeah that is passive aggressive yeah (laughs) um and and it's the engine of change in the story right it's it's what it's what transitions the friendship between the two boys, forces them to move from the narrator's house to Art's house, which is where 
then they find this real calm, this space to explore themselves and the world and ideas. But this dog is also the ticking clock, like this menace that's just sitting off screen waiting. All of these things that Joe Hill has set up to be a ticking clock, that Art will be punctured, that his dad's gotten this dog, and so the dog will kill Art. He outlasts all of them. Yeah. He doesn't get punctured. He doesn't get eaten by Happy. Uh, He does get injured by Happy in a way that becomes a place of guilt for the narrator because he wasn't there to save him. Mm. But that's still not the thing. Uh, The thing... Uh, as we often do, we're going to tell you the end of the story. Um, You know, the thing is that he allows art to do what art wants to do, which is, you know, kind of contained in this wonderful quote where the story says, I don't actually remember who says it, so I'm just going to say the story says, Mm -hmm. um, you get an astronaut's life, whether you want it or not. Mm -hmm. Leave it all behind for a world you know nothing about. That's just the deal. And that's what Art wants to do. He wants to hitch himself to some balloons and see how high he can go. And I adore that in what is really an act of kindness and sacrifice that the narrator allows Art to do this. That's the place where he causes himself the most pain and also really fulfills the prophecy that Joe Hill set up, which is this character will ultimately feel horrible guilt for destroying the life of Art. But in... Allowing art to destroy his own life, he lets art fulfill his own desire for that transcendent hope. He achieves something that both, um, well, like I I thought about it this way, that there's that bit after they've gotten happy where art is just practicing his balloon rides and he sees happy pinned up and smirling around in his own feces and is like, that's not good. Mm. And the narrator's like, no, I think happy's happy there. I think some people just really want to live in feces. They want to live in shit and they want to spread shit around the world. And that's just the way the world works. And for me, the story succeeds or fails in teasing out the essential impossibilities of this situation. Part of the impossibility is how much the narrator fears what he believes is true, both about happy and himself and about the state of the world, but also how much he fears and wants to believe in art and the world and views that he represents. Uh, and which we know the narrator really does want to believe in. And the fact that the story pushes at that fear and belief on and on and on, even past the life of art, is what makes it a total heartbreaking success. Part of the genius of this story, at a structural level, is exactly what you were talking about. You, you sort of know it's set up as a tragedy. You kind of know art's going to die. He's this vulnerable, inflatable kid. But he doesn't meet that expectation in a way that you could have really possibly imagined at the beginning. And that is what I, I feel as a reader gives you that rush when you get a story and you're like, oh, I think it's going to be this. But oh, 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 my God, no, it's something so much better and so much more wonderful. And then not only does art's death happen in a way that you the mechanism is not even introduced until about halfway through right the art doesn't start going on these helium bloom rides until quite late on but then the story doesn't end with art's death we go on we go forward to fast forward through the narrator's life up to college where he meets an inflatable girl and starts dating her 
and you see how his relationship with art has allowed him to have this beautiful relationship with this girl and and you understand the healing that it has brought him my pick for this week is a story by Sophia Samatar called Walk Dog, and it is in her collection Tinder, which came out this year. Uh, and it would seem, as often happens, so often as to seem at this point to have the flavor of magic, uh, Emma and I have picked two stories deeply in conversation with each other uh, that share subject and theme, if very wildly in form. Here again, we've got the ache of a childhood friendship that is betrayed by time and the world and by realism and by the narrator's own failings um a friendship and friend and loss which haunts hounds the narrator uh in this story just as it haunts the narrator in joe hill's story but the way sophia does it she works in a similar way to joe hill in that she captures a very disarming and honest and sweet voice uh that actually gets much more bitter than joe hill's voice um delightfully but the story is in the shape of a report that yolanda has written to give to her teacher as she is a student in school and yolanda's friend in the story which she begins by telling us is a horrible total 100 percent nerd gas dumbo uh i've paraphrased there uh that kid the friend is the teacher's nephew And the report that this story is in the shape of is a report about this mystical being called the walk dog. And it starts in such an academic tone, but through footnotes, which are helpfully in the story, we start to get more of the story of their friendship and the tragedy that befalls it and the amount of blame Yolanda puts both on herself and onto the teacher and this kind of almost hope for horror like used like she almost wants to believe in the mysticism contained in the idea of this walk dog monster because if that amount of magic supernatural horror exists maybe andy's okay the pacing of this story is something that blew my mind the way the way information is revealed to us so it starts off And the first couple of pages, it just seems to be this very straightforward child's report about Walk Dog, a mystical animal, and what it does. And honestly, when I started reading the first few paragraphs, first page, I was like, why has Chris picked this? I'm like, it doesn't seem, you know, I'm not exactly sure where it's going or or why, you know, what it is that's, that's intriguing to him. But very gradually by asides and by the footnotes that you that you mentioned she starts to reveal that it's not walk dog it's not this mystical beast that is the real topic at hand it is andy the giant dork of the school the guy who has such a huge cloud of nerd gas surrounding him it could choke you it was one of the one of the charming parts of it the masterful pacing of it is that every time you have a a question or something comes up in your mind, she answers it in the next sentence or the next paragraph. She's in so much in control of of how you're thinking. It's incredible. So she introduces Andy, the guy who the guy who knows about Walk Dog, quite early on. But you don't start to wonder about him and who he is to Yolanda until you know, kind of page two, and then he's introduced in a footnote, and then and then you know, a few pages later, you start to think 
oh, it seems like maybe they had more of a close relationship and bam, yeah, okay, you understand that she's been going to his house, but not going in the front door, Uh uh-uh. Climbing in the window at the back because she's so ashamed to be seen with him. And that is where you start to really understand the, the depth and pain that is inside of the story. It begins in such an academic tone. You feel like as a reader, you've not been given a contract that tells you what's going to happen, which is something that various writing teachers have often told me that the first paragraph, the first sentence, you set up a contract with the reader about what's going to happen. And that's not, it ultimately is entirely what Sophia has done because she sets up a tone and sets up the footnotes and gets you ready, but you don't know it. And so when the walk dog, this mystical creature that uh, Yolanda is writing about, that she discovered through Andy, when it is first described, it took my breath away. It was such careful and terrifying description of something that also seemed almost warm and friendly. And and the way she described it, the way the walk dog appears, is this little shape that maybe comes up into the yard and is in the shape of a dog, and you hear something hitting your window like branches, and you go to look, and then this thing rises up, and is suddenly this taller creature. And it's all, there's something cute about the way it stands, but then... Then it just starts saying, come along for a walk with me. And you're yeah, like, I don't want to go. Major I don't want to go. Terror. Come along for a walk with me. E, 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 E. There's something about the ridiculousness of the laugh. Like the friendly ridiculousness, but the demanding ridiculousness. And like it was, it, it really, the way it's placed in the story, uh, it, it made my heart sing. Yeah, it, so it seems to represent uh, the desperation for connection that Andy probably had and that Yolanda really is only beginning to understand now after he's gone. Because that's the final piece of information that's revealed about Andy is that you know the bullying that he was receiving escalated to the point where he was hospitalized and then he left. He ran away, or as his mum said... He went for a walk. Walk dog represents this idea of him wanting to spend time with other people. And it seems only through writing this paper, through sort of reaching out to her teacher, that Yolanda is kind of, she's desperate for Andy to be okay, but she's also starting to understand what walk dog meant to him um, and why he was so convinced of its reality and so obsessed with it. Like, it begins to feel like, like a truer ghost story to me than I think I've ever really come across. I've, I feel like all of the ghost stories I've ever encountered have been of ghosts that haunt a place or haunt a person. Whereas I feel like the way that I experience haunting, to make this about myself, but also to make it about Yolanda, mm. is the way that being haunted becomes an obsession that takes you places, that takes, his, yeah. takes you places you've never been. Um, and how wonderful that is, but also how scary. And something I adored in this story is that there are, along with the research paper and the footnotes, there is inside of the research paper and also the footnotes, these two other kind of stories or works of art that are making their way in. One is the original story of somebody that vanished for 30 years and came back and said, the walk dog took me. Um, And another is this song I don't even know if it's real. I didn't Google it. I don't care right now whether it's real. Emma seems really excited to tell me whether it's real or not. 
but it is a song that includes lines about how a hound dog came about being obsessed and how, you know, all my life, this hound dog been howling. I, I paraphrase that again. I'm not quoting, I'm just making it up. But uh, it all goes through this thing. Sophia has a real thing for margins. Uh, she has a real thing for having stories embedded inside of stories, not just in the way of like uh, A Thousand and One Nights, where somebody's telling a story and then somebody's telling a story, but it's almost like Sophia's stories are often an argument with another story that exists right beside them. Like they're fighting for attention. Like which one is the more real story? And they yeah, exist in the same story, space. Her stories exist in a, in a world where stories exist. Yeah, and they overlap each other. Yeah, and I, I love it to death because it's like, it's so fascinating. The, like the stories that other stories give birth to and the stories that hide other stories and the way that the stories we tell tend to hide ourselves really well at the same time they reveal everything about us that we don't want anybody else to know uh and that's, that's something i adored in the footnotes and the way this worked and yeah that that obsession with um marginalia and bringing in the the lyrics of a song writing the story in the shape of a of a term paper there, i guess there could be people who'd be like why do you do that what how is that useful but that it allows her to do something very beautiful with managing your emotions and investment so two things that i noticed that that it allowed her to do one was the description of how andy gets attacked happens in a footnote not in the main body of the paper and it is brutal right he ends up with broken bones he ends up bloody and in hospital and the fact that that happens in this in this kind of tiny font at the bottom of the page, squished in together, like gives it so much desperation. But but also because it's a footnote, you kind of feel like maybe Yolanda is kind of you know pushing it off to the side and unable to deal with it. And the structure allows her to do that. And then the second thing that the structure allows her to do is that this this song that she's quoting quoting from all the time you have the whole arc of of Yolanda's story the whole arc of her desperation it ends with her being like please teacher I don't remember what her teacher's name is you know tell me that he's okay tell me that everything's going to be fine and I said and I will end my research with completing the lyrics of this song and so you end on this incredible kind of rhythm of sadness like a dog howling at the moon that just echoes her pain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right, because putting things in the footnotes, it, it it gets to work like a poem, the way we think of poems being structured in such a way that the, the actual physical structure of the poem hits us, whereas we tend to have been conditioned that stories are in a certain structure, and you've got to work within that structure and do whatever magic you're going to do, but you're not allowed to break it. But we know that's not true. People break it all the time. It's great. And this this breaks it. Cause the footnote both highlights like the, the fact that she's squishing it. But for us as readers of a story, the footnotes also highlight everything that's most important because it makes it stand out from the rest of the story. Yeah, exactly. It might as well have big flashing neon arrows around right? it being like, yeah. hey, look over here. Uh-huh, yeah, it reminded me of, um, what was the painter we saw? We saw a painter, Howard Hodgson. Hodgkin. 
Hodgkin. And one of the things he does is he, he either paints the frame into his paintings or he decorates the frame that the painting's in. Yeah. It's just like, no, I do not accept that I have to imagine there's no frame or that there is a frame. I'm, I'm just painting. Right, he's like, what is, what is this kind of cultural um, lie we're accepting mm-hmm. of... I'm going to paint this painting and then it's going to be in a frame, but I'm going to pretend the frame doesn't exist or is somehow separate to the frame. Like he is just embracing mm-hmm. it all and being like, I understand how my paintings exist in the world. Um, and I am going to wrap all of that into my creative process. Yeah. Yeah. I think that is the thing It's something, it's something that I've been thinking and talking to some people about, about stories as actual objects that have interiority like they have life of their own and that thing you said like he's not imagining his paintings don't exist in the world they do exist in the world and he decorates the frames and the last thought i had was about pity and the function of pity uh there's a thing that joseph campbell said he of the hero with a thousand faces on the pbs interview with him and bill moyers called the power of myth about the power of suffering and pity to compel us to compassion. This for him was what the story and the image of Jesus on the cross was about. It wasn't about resurrection. It was about suffering and that it compelled us to compassion for the pain of another human being that was made to suffer. And in both of the stories we've talked about, Walk Dog and Pop Art, the stories go out of their way to describe how pathetic are the ghosts that haunt the narrators, mm-hmm. um, how pitiable art being inflatable, uh, incapable of coordination or speech. <laughs> he has to carry around his little notepad that he can write on with crayon because he can't carry a sharpened pencil. And Andy, like we talked about, you know, this so hopeless, surrounded by nerd gas, cursed with an oily face, and yet both in their way are also blessed and depicted with a kind of nobility and magic. Like there's something special about them. Uh, and it's like they, for, for me, when I was, reading these stories in conversation, it was thinking about how they almost function, both uh, Art and Andy, and why not Jesus, uh, as like an outside heart, somebody vulnerable and alive to everything, and that the stories and the characters in those stories try to protect themselves and these vulnerable hearts by wrapping them and how pitiful they are and distance themselves through ridicule and footnotes and cynicism, anything they can throw at the character to try to get themselves yeah. distant. And the stories succeed entirely in the failure of that distance, the reclamation of the wounded heart. And the and it's like, well, because of course, like we're really uncomfortable with reading stories like this, but we really love them because we're all art, we're all yeah. Jesus, we're all these really pitiful, noble creatures I suffering. Think, I, I think you've said something really important there. And I realize that that is one of the main things that I read stories for is to have feelings for people in the stories that I won't allow myself, I won't allow me to have about myself. You know, I can feel for Andy and for Art that kind of compassion for for these people who are just desperate failures at life in a way that if slash when I fail at stuff I won't ever allow myself to admit that but reading stories like this allows me to experience those feelings in a safe place Hmm. yep thanks for listening readers we have probably not talked about 
all of the things about these stories. Nor all of the stories that exist in this world or any of the worlds that exist in the various multiverses that live inside your heart or inside the sun or really anywhere. I'm just making up places at this point. Emma, please stop this <laughs> sentence at any time. Um, so if you want to tell us your thoughts on these stories uh, or recommend us stories to discuss in future episodes, you can hit us up on Twitter. We are at Storyological. Which is story. Like the word. Oh. Like the letter. And logical. Like Aristotle. You can follow Emma on Twitter. She is at E.G. Kosh. And you can follow Chris on Twitter. He is at Kuvols. Uh, you can find and like and follow and click about at, at the Facebook place. We click are, about with us. Hey, come on down. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Come on round, y'all. <laughs> Facebook.com slash storylogical. Um, and if you have enjoyed this episode, and we hope you have, you can find us in Apple Podcasts and leave us a review, which helps other people find us, which we love. Yes. And of course, as continues to be the case, if you are opposed to iTunes for whatever reason, for example, the fact that it's now called Apple Podcasts sometimes, even though it's still iTunes, uh, you can do some other stuff. You've got the socials. You've got the socials, The yeah. medias. Um, you've got the real people. The real people the in people your life. The people in your life yeah. where you can like... you got post-it notes. Pushing post-it notes under doors. I like that as yeah, a Yeah, just sticking them up on telephone poles. Anything. Get the word out there. <laughs> um, yes. <laughs> uh, well, that's right. We've lost our thread. And of course, for show notes, appropriate and inappropriate gifts, links to past episodes including interviews with Amala Motar, Sam J. Miller, Adam Ehrlich-Sachs. Uh, you can hit us up. No, you can always find us at our home on the web. Storyological.com. Thanks for listening. Happy reading. Uh, but there's bigger changes. Bigger changes. Um... The biggest change is you wouldn't ever believe what Emma did to her. Edit it out. It's really cool. It's really cool. Um, it's not. I like your post production voice. It's uh, inspired by Sam J. Miller, who uh, did some post production in our interview where I told him when he quoted RuPaul that if it was a mistake, I would fix it later. And he went into post production voice and said, William Shakespeare. <laughs> yeah, we just interviewed. You want to do the post-production voice? And and it was really great. They were two really amazing conversations. <laughs> <laughs>